billionaire, Mr. White, Mr. Blonde, Mr. Orange, Mr. Pink. Why am I Mr. Pink? He's the troublemaker. You silver tongued devil, you. Each and every man under my command owes me 100 Nazi scouts. All right, ready? One, two, three! Don't lay your palm flat on that tabletop! Don't be looking at me like that, all right? I can feel your look. You wanna fuck with me? You're acting like a first year fucking thief. I'm acting like a professional. Yeah, if he doesn't into your Nazi box. I love that stuff. Recording, the killing. A lot of killing. And welcome back, analysis listeners. I want to welcome back into the show a very special guest, someone that was on one of our most listened to two episodes ever, the Leonardo DiCaprio case for. Welcome back, a good buddy of mine from the acting world, the theater world here in Chicago, Mr. Spencer Davis. Hey, whoa, it feels even warmer in here than it did the last time. Holy. Nice callback to your own episode <laughs> last year. <laughs> I, I, I thought you'd like that, thanks. But the water is warm. Hey, welcome back, man. <laughs> this is a special, this is a very special episode, and I want to get right to it. We're going to skip some of the pleasantries because we got a loaded baked potato of a show today. And you're special because you have somebody, and, and I always, when I go to do case four, we're doing a case four today, I always reference this big spreadsheet I have full of actors, actresses, directors, etc. And this is somebody that a lot of people have asked to sign up for, but I saved him for you. Today we're going to be talking about Mr. Quentin Tarantino. What, what? Yeah. What, what is correct? And I saved him for you because you're my special directing buddy. You are an active director here in the Chicago scene. You've actually won a Jeff Award, which is kind of like the Chicago Tonys, for those who might not be familiar. But you've won a Jeff Award for directing in theater plays. You Mm -hmm. have been nominated twice this year for two different projects. So hit our siren for, uh, you know, for the humble brag, but Spencer <laughs> Davis. So you're my, you're my, you're my, you've directed me in shows and, and you've got this director's eye. And so I, Quentin Tarantino is the first ever director we've done a case for, for. Oh, cool. So, I didn't know that. That's awesome. Yeah. So that's why I've kind of saved this one special for you. So oh, uh, you're in rare air. A lot of people wanted to, wanted to run at this, but, um, so we're doing a case four today. Typically, case fours we profile uh, someone's career, so actor, actress, director, and we do that by picking our two favorite films they've done that can either be best films or best performances. However, we we decide to to categorize that is up to us. We also talk about their one worst film, and then we do some shout outs and, and some general thoughts as well. So let's get into it right now. And when you think Quentin Tarantino, what are some of the first feelings or things that come to mind for you, Spencer? You know, it's actually, it's changed over time. I used to think of him as violent, vulgarity. I used to think of him as an uh, an actor's director who liked to mash things together. I always thought of him as like kind of a, he's always putting together like a mixtape of a film. There are so many homages in his film, or at least this is how I used to feel, that I didn't really know where other films ended and he began. Um, but nowadays, I kind of think of him as a genre in and of himself. And I think you'd find that a lot in, in, in folks who 
love and admire Quentin Tarantino. He has created this set of expectations that anytime you go to see one of his films, you're going to see certain ingredients on screen, and never in like a predictable way. Um, but uh, yeah, right now I kind of think of him as, uh, whereas before I saw him as he's borrowing so much that I wasn't sure what his own original ideas were, to now I almost think of him as one of our kings of originality, really. That's so interesting, yeah, because there's a there's a funny line that was used in Entourage where they're trying to talk about this upcoming director, and they're like, man, this guy's so hot, he's Tarantino's already stealing from him. <laughs> and then someone, one of the gang goes, yeah, Tarantino only steals from the best. And yeah, but yeah, so he was kind of this guy who, you're right, it was this mixtape, or it was just all of these different, he was the master of combining these elements from other movies or other genres, and he really was this kind of cinephile that had a great understanding of genre and film history, and so he was able to mash all these things up into a modern story and, and really just had some unconventional ways of, of doing a story, at least that I had never seen before, and some of the movies that I've picked are great examples of that. But I also just look at him now as, as just a master of dialogue. When I, mm-hmm. when I think of him now, I really think he's, he's evolved into this world-class writer and, and just kind of a writing prodigy and somebody that actors are just dying to be able to speak his words. And mm-hmm. I love his universe that he's built up. I love that shared universe with the red apple cigarettes and Mm -hmm. he's got characters that him and Robert Rodriguez share and you've got Machete and you've got the sheriff from Dust Till Dawn also being in Kill Bill and this this whole universe that he's created which is really fun and and there's there's different fan theories how the the revisionist histories work together and and uh, and I also just think he's really adept at soundtracks and his his movies just have a very distinct energy and i think he uses soundtracks in a really unique way when it comes to mirroring it with his scene work and overall just you're right this incredibly original feeling and he's definitely somebody when i hear he's got a movie coming out even if it's three years uh, of a project that's being worked man I, i i stick around and i read the 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 articles that come out about the movies and, and, and what's coming up and who's being cast in these movies and I get super excited for so yeah. definitely well, I, a top two or three director for me yeah and I, I think I would agree I don't think I would have agreed maybe I would say eight ten years ago but yes now I would I totally would um and and I I think we'll as we kind of talk about our picks I think I'll I'll find the spot exactly where my opinion of him changed but I think oh. you're right. It's like there's this moment, right, where he is such a cinephile. You can tell every frame he's ever shot that he absolutely loves filmmaking. Um, oh, but yeah. I will say and the something... actors that work with him right. also look like they're having the best time of their life, absolutely. in my opinion. But I will, I will say something that's probably un, unpopular is that in his earlier films, I think I had trouble, and this is just me personally, I had trouble tracking what he himself was contributing. Right? Like, if you copy and paste from so many... I know, I know, unpopular opinion. But again, I love the man now, so please forgive me for that. But for me, it was certain elements from so many things. What specifically are you bringing to the table? And I think I've learned over time exactly what that is. Um, But I also think he's just... And I'll, I'll go so far as to say, I genuinely think he's gotten better as he's become more comfortable in his own voice 
Um, I do think early on, I do think there was this hunger to impress. I think there was this, you know, the moment he wins the Palm Door for Pulp Fiction and somebody boos him, he flips them off. You know, he was this rock and roll kid coming up from, from the bottom, from the, you know, this video store that he worked at, um, to, to being someone who was like, he, everything he did was about making a statement. And now I feel like he's, he's grown out of that. And now he's just telling really, really good stories. And like you said, harnessing this incredible dialogue. Yeah, I watched the Aaron Sorkin masterclass, <laughs> hit a siren for reference there. But he talked about how he was envious of Quentin Tarantino, who just seems to have these great plots mm. just just that come out of him very naturally. Yep. And other writers, they have to, to really work at, at developing a truly compelling plot. Yep. But... Just yeah, he. I think what he would add to me the most is is just the, the the dialogue itself, and and the movies that I chose were definitely ones that his dialogue is on best display, mm. and the actors are executing at a very high level. I also love, and you kind of touched on this a little bit. I I love how unapologetic he mm. is, and he makes content that other directors or other because he's writing and directing all of his stuff. Writers wouldn't write, and directors probably wouldn't direct because they make audiences anxious or they are kind of difficult to pull off and so i think a lot of people would shy away from them but he allows himself so much creative control that he puts it up there he doesn't apologize for it it is what it is it's part of his story and he truly believes in it and and i've always kind of liked that about him and you come or go like he's not for everybody Mm -hmm. but I've always, I've always gone along. It for the is ride. funny you mentioned plot because even more than dialogue, I do think he is this master of plot, and I don't think he gets enough credit for it. And I think what you can hearken this back to is this idea that you can never, I, truly, I have never once watched one of his films and known where it was going next. Um, oh, and no. yet, it never feels like he's getting in there and tinkering with the characters to make them, uh, you know, forcing them to make dumb decisions do things that are out of character if anything you look at something like uh, a film like inglorious bastards and it really does it ebbs and flows and the folks who die sometimes you thought that they were going to have this huge arc they're there for one scene and then he offs them and he does that because that's what would really happen uh particularly Mm -hmm. in that situation and i so i think there's something very interesting about for someone who gets a lot of slack and credit i think it's it goes both ways for being over the top and and not necessarily having both feet always planted on the ground of realism i think actually his characters tend to behave pretty realistically um this idea of and they make when they're when they make stupid mistakes that can sometimes come back to bite them um and he doesn't do that for the sake of interesting cinema. He does that because he cares about them so deeply. He lets them be 110% themselves. Um, and I, I, I love that about his writing in particular, especially what I'm going to kind of refer to as like his back end catalog, um, which I, I, yeah. I know we'll get into deeper as we kind of talk about the picks and, and pans and what have you. But um, yeah, for me, plot really was something that, I mean, even with... I think there are a lot of twists in Pulp Fiction that he got a lot of credit for. Even this idea of playing with time, jumping around. So someone who died in a previous scene were jumping back into the past and now they're alive again. I know he was the first person mm-hmm. to kind of remix it structurally. Uh, but I've always really loved the, the way that his, his scenes ebb and flow in such a way that 
he's comfortable sitting in the same drawing room for 20 minutes and it's compelling cinema um and i love that about him well we've teased enough on what our picks are let's just (laughs) get down to these damn picks i'm gonna let you go first what's your first favorite tarantino my number one is glorious bastards uh Ooh. yeah this one this converted me uh i so this so this was the moment you were talking this about this was yeah um so when i said yeah i was converted almost 10 years ago it was yeah just a little over 10 years ago um was that 2008 that was 2009 i believe yeah i think 2009, 2009. Okay. um and uh he up until then, I had really admired him as a director. I really had. Um, I had. I think I. I was a little too young to admire what Pulp Fiction did on its own. I had been so used to the films that it had inspired that by the time I reached the film itself, it seemed like old hat. Even though when it came fresh out of the oven, it was the first of its kind. I'd seen so many. Um, what should I say, films inspired by it, so many of its ancestors, by the time that I finally reached it, I couldn't admire it on its own. But uh, for me, you know, his directing in Kill Bill was incredible. Um, I thought some of his homages were just superb. You want to talk about soundtracks, like Kill Bill Volume 1 in particular, some of those songs he repurposed in such a way that uh, they are, you don't even know what they were originally used in because you feel like they were used for the first time in any film. Um, but for me, Inglorious Bastards takes the, the top pick because he, one, as a theater director, I just, I love when a scene just sits in itself. Um, mm. And he has multiple <laughs> scenes. He starts off with that scene on the farm. Um, and the, it's one of the best scenes I've ever seen. I mean, truly. And, like, talk about just, like, stretching a rubber band. Um, and then he tops himself in the same movie with the basement the bar in the basement scene, um, which... Because you're fighting in a basement. Right, exactly. Where he somehow takes a card game um, and and turns it into this tense, you know, this this tense kind yeah. of like play within a play. Um, and the, the way that the uh, certain character gives himself away is so subtle and yet absolutely true it, it's just i i don't want i'm trying to s- talk about this movie without giving anything away but essentially no you're allowed to definitely spoil all oh am i well we the, the idea of, yeah, come of, on in uh, great the idea that like the way that germans you know gesture the number three and the way that the, the british the do three versus right three, yeah uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. Try Glazer. This is the German three. Right, right, exactly. I, I, I love that that was the tipping point. Something so subtle. Up until then, it was a cat and mouse game. And, and they're sitting still. If you watch it, it's it's a bunch of men and one woman sitting in chairs, right? And, and it is the yeah. most tense scene you saw that year. Um, I also love, because it was the first time that I had genuinely wanted to spend more time with a group of characters in a long time than the film allowed me to. I mean, it makes a lot of sense because Tarantino talks about he wanted to make this. At one point, he talked about making this a miniseries. He talked about, at one point, writing it as a novel, which I know he does with a lot of his films anyway. He imagines them in prose, and then he writes them accordingly, and he then adapts them into screenplays, as he says. But this was the first time that I just felt waist-deep in a film for a very long time, um, the casting top to bottom of actors you know and actors you don't know was perfect. 
um, and utilizing Brad Pitt having a character whose throat has a scar like it was slit previously. But you, you never know the story behind that. I absolutely love it. And then, of course, you can't talk about this film without Christoph Waltz, who just, who was this character actor who somehow knew four languages. You know, he was the only actor who could have played this role. It was yeah. as if Tarantino knew this actor when he wrote it. And, and he just embodied this so completely. Uh, I, I just, I, I can t consistently go back and revisit scenes in this film, just as writing exercises, or just to watch how he dials up tension. The idea of watching someone eat, um, I, oh my gosh, was it? The, the cream on the, yeah, on the pie. On the, exactly. Yeah. Um, the the uh, way that Christoph Waltz chews his food is so terrifying. Um, it's just, I, mm -hmm. I, I, there are so many micro moments in this film that work beautifully. And then it leads to this finale that is so bombastic and yet absolutely 100% feels earned. Um, and I love that. It changes history, uh, and you don't care. You're, you're along for the ride. And it felt like for the first time in a long time, I felt like not only could I feel all the homages that Tarantino was making, but I understood what was important to him. Um, and I, as a result, I feel like, you know, this is not only one of my, I think one of my favorite films to date now, but definitely my favorite Tarantino film. Watching that bar scene back in a rewatch, you, you watch the three go up and you're like, it just, it's crazy now in a rewatch. Cause you, it's, you're totally confused on how the German officer knows mm. so suddenly and then you watch it back, and you watch it, and it's just that it's it's so fascinating in a rewatch to to see it play, and it's and it's even more nerve wracking knowing what's coming. And I just love so this movie, and, and Quentin Tarantino was quoted as saying, "I like that the that uh, the power of film fights the Nazis, not just as a metaphor, but in reality." And mm. so he really—we were talking about how he uses these genres, but you know, just the film industry in general is what takes down the Nazis in this revisionist history. She's burning the film, you know, the film lights. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the the film burns at a certain rate. She it, like they they shoot them all to death and blow up a movie theater. They they disguise themselves as well, there's one real actress, but you know, movie directors and stuff. So he and, and Quentin Tarantino, you know, he's somebody and this is something me and my brother had recently said to each other, but when he does not like someone in history and decides to put them in his his revisionist. He really punishes them. You oh, don't yeah. just kill Hitler with with a gun or uh, or anything. You you shoot him five thousand times and then you blow up the theater. And yep. but there was all these different homages throughout the movie to to the genre and kind of that that mashup that we were talking about. Even to the opening Universal logo is from the '60s and it was when mm -hmm. all those Sergio Leone movies were coming out. So that opening scene and it's one of my favorite scenes of all time has a lot of homage to the good bag and the ugly like there's mm -hmm. there's a, an opening scene in that that's that's pretty familiar and then even just the uh, the character with the machine gun Eli Roth with the machine gun at the end looks a lot like Scarface and mm -hmm. there's all these different you know moments where he's he's putting it metaphorically that the film industry is is using its tactics to take down the Nazi but then also just movies in general kill the Nazis right. and so it, it's just fun in that way and 
and it's 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 fun to kind of to to understand specifically what he's going for in some of these uh, some of these moments and then yeah Christoph Waltz I mean it's it's uh it's he was j- truly star making in that moment and mm-hmm. as soon as you watch it you're like where is this guy from how can he get in more movies and you're almost just begging Hollywood to to give him more chances and and although he has had definitely a, a film career since then you're just like still use him more Jesus he also I mean talk about it's it's also one of the first times I've seen a director cast his fellow directing friend Eli Roth in a yeah. really good casting choice as the Bear Jew. I mean Eli Roth actually fits that role like a glove, and I, I thought that was incredibly well, it's almost, impressive. It's almost like a horror scene, right? That right. like beating someone to death with oh a baseball God. bat, and yep. he's like this horror director, so it kind of right. works. And it's again the film industry, right? He right. he's using the film industry to kill the Nazis. So I'm going to take yeah. this horror film guy, have him be a horror character, and kill the Nazis. Yeah, so absolutely. It's, I mean, even look, yeah, I was just going to say, you know, for me, he has two Oscars. He should have three. You know, the idea that I understand that Hurt Locker um, and Catherine Bigelow. Uh, this was their year, but there is no reason on planet Earth that he should have lost for original screenplay. Uh, the idea that this this screenplay was this huge international tome of sorts, and the intricacies, the way that he has, I want to say, 20 characters of notoriety in this film, and they all, all of their arcs are complete, they all culminate in this mission at the movie theater um it's structurally just this incredible and he does it so slyly you really don't see it coming um and even if you've even on a rewatch it's incredible the way that um a supporting character or a background character in one scene then turns out to be for example the, the 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 nazi who ends up showing up um in the the bar in the basement um, and ends up noticing the number three. In a previous scene, he was the driver for someone else and dropped someone off at a restaurant. And the idea that he mm. allowed a character to play such a small role in one scene and such a pivotal one in another, it just it really is this intricate web of notable characters. Um, and you can feel each and every actor uh, just kind of milking their opportunity. Um, so it's a really cool ensemble piece, too, which I'm also a big sucker for. And you're right that it, there's there's elements of theater in it. You could definitely see some of those scenes out in a stage play. Mm-hmm. And I know Hateful Eight also, he originally thought it would work really well in a stage play concept, which I totally agree. And there's almost an intermission with Hateful Eight. But yeah, mm-hmm. with this one, like that opening scene, is that's a theater scene, right? And that, that scene in the basement, that feels very much like a, a theater scene. And there's also there's some things that are incredibly cinematic in this movie as well. But mm-hmm. yeah, just for us theater guys, just chewing on some of that dialogue and scene work, it's like, oh yeah, that, that, that definitely feels uh, home to us as well, right? Absolutely. Cool. Um, well... Because there's only two of us, this is a little unique, but I and and you're my special guest. I want you to uh, go into your second movie if you don't mind, and then I'll oh. I'll do mine on the back half because I I want oh, I want to hear what your second one is. Uh, my second one's gonna be the one that came right after this, Django Unchained. Oh, um, cool. All right, so mine are still open. <laughs> my two. Oh, fantastic. Oh, very cool. very cool. Yeah, yeah. For me, Django Unchained felt like 
um, without necessarily like following up on the promise of Inglorious Bastards, because I don't quite know what that would mean, it felt like it it did exactly for me what Inglorious Bastards did, which was I recognized the genres he was playing with, and I recognized the hats he was tipping in the direction of certain filmmakers. And yet, for me, he was creating a, a central character and several side characters um, of, uh, that had their own mythos, right? I love this idea of a German bounty hunter who frees a slave who becomes this African-American Western hero. Um, and I, I, this is another film of his that... Almost structurally, I think at one point he talked about splitting it into two movies and they talked him out of it. You know, there, he would have split it between mm-hmm. Django on the road with the dentist uh, training to become a bounty hunter. And then the second one would have been Candyland, um, which I think could have worked. Um, I'm glad he didn't because I really like it as a complete package. Um, but the idea that, um, you know, between Django and Dr. Schultz being this odd couple of sorts i love the idea of him playing with um the mentor mentee role the the obi-wan kenobi and luke skywalker kind of i'm going to teach you what i know and then you're going to reach your full potential while also having this damsel in distress plot kind of driving them it's also the one of the first uh films that i've seen in a while that waits a very long time to introduce what turns out to be a central villain. Yeah, um, it's two hours into the movie before he shows right, up. Right, before he shows up. And I, I absolutely love that. Um, I, it, yeah, please. Uh, yeah, I was just... So, you're, you're, you're saying a lot of the things that I also really like about this movie. And, again, we, we talk about some of this revisionist history uh, or, or just genre mashing and, and this this plays into it as well this is really just that revenge fantasy so it's not necessarily revisionist history but just a revenge fantasy mm. uh, uh, from the perspective of slaves and i think there's some things he does directorially here that are also really interesting in, in, in some of the ways he's able to to use his, his metaphor with just the 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 horse the 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 riders and you know he shoots the guy off the horse and there's blood all over this pure white horse and there's mm. blood on it you know it's like killing the white guy or just there's uh he, he shoots down one of the the brothers and uh, the what were they called the beetle brothers or something mm. and uh there's just spray all, all these beautiful white flowers and there's blood splattered all across them and it's kind of just like yeah we're getting revenge like it like kind of just taking it from and, and it kind of plays into that uh those uh revisionist westerns where it really kind of showed at the end uh you know when they started making these in the 60s but they showed just a different perspective where you know it really was indian people the indians were were being taken advantage of or or absolutely mistreated and it wasn't glorifying and um even just the way that violence against white people in this movie are depicted versus violence against the slaves is really interesting where the white it's almost cartoonish it's very tarantino right things are exploding the the people it's 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 this almost like mortal combat kind of scene and right. then when it comes to the violence against the slaves you know it's very realistic looking and it kind of makes your stomach turn right. and you know that's very intentional and very smart directorially i was going to i that was going to be my next point actually is, oh sorry <laughs> i think no no i think it's great i'm just piggybacking on it on it which is i think he gets a uh, 
unfair reputation for, at least unfair now, of being um, irresponsibly violent. And I actually find that to be the opposite here in Django, which is I find the way that he shoots, for example, when the two slaves are, um, when the two Mandingos are actually fighting in the parlor room, um, mm-hmm. it's horrifying. It's absolutely horrifying. And he shows what he needs to show, and he lets sound do a lot of the work for him. Not only does he not glamorize it, if anything, you're like you said, you're you're getting upset stomach wise. You actually, it's hard to watch. Schultz is there, uh, you know, squirming in his seat, and you should be doing the same. Um, this is not a world you're used to, and he knows that. And I I think the way that he actually depicts it says, hey, we can't. I'm not going to glamorize this. I'm not going to make a show of this. But we also can act like it never happened. Um, This was a part of American history that we like to bury in our history books or just cut them out altogether. And I'm not going to allow us to do that. Um, And I I really love that that responsible way that he he approaches that. And he... And he... It's completely juxtaposed to that final scene where... Jamie Foxx has the cool sunglasses and he's doing the raid on the on the mansion and the way that he's blowing apart all the Candyland associates. You know, it's just mm-hmm. it's completely different and it's and it's very intentional and and it's uh, and it's and it's interesting and, and and again go back going back to that those revisionist westerns where they were trying to say like this is a, this is actually what these moments were like for the Native American people and right. so he's he's using that cross genre but doing it with with a slave element which is which absolutely is uh and two other things i'll say about it one you talked about his dialogue earlier i think this movie is utterly quotable in ways that i think are subtle and surprising i mean and they're the kind of quotes that on their own may not perk up the ear but the kid's a natural like in context it's such a great line or i like the way you die boy or mm-hmm. Are you sure? I'm positive. What's positive mean? You know these yeah. these games that he's constantly. Are you gonna hold my hand? Oh, we gonna dance together. What's dance. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That idea mm-hmm. of like you have my curiosity now you have my attention. It's yeah. It really is. I'm not even looking these up. It's just and I haven't watched the movie in I want to say at least a year now, but they still kind of feel lodged in my brain a little bit. Um, and I love that about the film, and rightly so. He did win an Oscar for this one, um, and I think they almost needed to make up for the inglorious bastards loss but on its own Django deserved it and then i think the second thing i'd say is yet again he delivers on the promise of uh a really tense scene of two people talking in a drawing room one person makes one dumb mistake one stubborn decision um and it totally blows apart what you think the film is um, and I love it. And you know, what I also love is the uh, the way that he allows... You said we can spoil, so I'm just going to go, go ahead and go talk for about it. it. Yeah. The idea that if Dr. Schultz were to walk away, having signed that contract, he shakes uh, Calvin Candy's hand, and he walks out, everyone's still alive. They win. Um, and yet, he decides, I'm going to endanger everyone in this room just to spite this man one last time before I die. Um, and so he actually almost plays against any, and I'm talking about he is in Tarantino, plays against any accusation of white savior complex that this film could have been. I think it even was still scrutinized, but I, I would disagree. I think, if anything, 
Schultz's decision there shows that he was out for himself, he made a selfish decision, and he endangered the two people he claimed to care about most. Um, and so it's almost the anti-white savior in that scene. I also love, too, it's like you kill the mentor and the villain in the same scene, uh, who's left? And what it really yeah. reveals is what a great character that Samuel L. Jackson's Sa Steven. Uh, Steven is. I mean, he really, what a great performance, first of all. Uh, uh, and I'll talk about this in a second, but I really think even though uh, Christoph Waltz won his second Oscar for this film, there are three performances here who could have been nominated for the Oscar in the same year. It's, it's Waltz, DiCaprio as Calvin Candy, and Samuel L. Jackson as Steven. It's that good of a performance. And it's incredible that Calvin Candy's wiped off the board and yet, in his place is Steven, and he is just as terrifying for a completely different reason. Um, and I, I absolutely love that about it. He, he almost forces himself to blow up his own structure, and then he goes, okay, within the rubble, what story do I have left to tell? Um, and for that, I really admire the film, and it's so, so watchable. Um, like Inglorious Bastards, it may appear on paper like it's longer than it should be, but I think he earns every minute of its running time, honestly. And any flashback, any cutaway, um, whereas I find in some other films them to be a little pretentious or a little self-indulgent, um, these, in both films, uh, any cutaway, any flashback, it contributes to the propulsive nature, the momentum of the main story whenever he's telling it. So that's the reason these are my top two. Yeah, it's you're so on with the with the multiple acts i would actually i think it's up for for a discussion whether the the villain of this movie is steven or whether the the, the villain of this movie is calvin or obviously there's a lot of duality that's happening mm. there but i think it's it's you've got multiple characters that steal scenes and a lot of times they're in scenes together which is kind of funny because you've got <laughs> right. you've got a dinner scene where you've got christoph waltz who's a scene stealer you've got leo who's a scene stealer you got steven who's a scene stealer like they're all in yeah. that room but they're all sharing at the same time and mm -hmm. it's just amazing how you can normally if you try to do that it's just going to blow up in your face but it really works well with this movie and, and each person is and it's not like oh this person's done now it's this person's turn a lot of mm. times it's almost within within a moment or a beat change that that person comes on and, 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 and finds that spotlight and and it's it's really fun to watch I also and I know we talked about this a little bit on the DiCaprio podcast uh, a year ago but it is you you have to commend Leo for taking the chance on this character because he's mm -hmm. this Hollywood golden boy, and to it, most Hollywood golden boys, if you say uh, uh, plantation owner psychopath, probably aren't going to take on that. And it really was kind of a culture shock to see him do this, and to see him just truly play a villainous person when he's normally playing that that ingenue. I think was just. Mm. Uh, uh, it was interesting. It was. It was, and it, I think it was executed very well. I think yeah. I really liked Jamie Fox, and I I liked his progression from shy, kind of the the modest mm -hmm. uh, slave, and then to to go full to full mentorship, badass, just ultimate. Uh, uh, fastest gun in the west or fast, fastest gun in the south is what they say which is funny but i just i love that transformation and and you know we've already talked about Kristoff, but so i like no, the cast I, as well uh, yeah absolutely again another great ensemble and and he what i love about him is he doesn't just have tarantino doesn't just have this reservoir this rolodex of the same six actors he's constantly adding to it 
and I really love that he brings back Waltz in a role that is really terrific. I mean, I, I think he even talked about how he was writing this dentist role. He did not know who he'd cast. He suddenly wrote that the, the dentist was German, and he went, oh, I guess this is Kristoff. Yeah. You know, Let's and I love, I love that. I love that this is his first time working with DiCaprio, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm not sure what your picks are, but maybe we talk about... Uh, a future, oh, you know, yes. their, oh, their you collaboration, you know? Bet your sweet um, baby. But, yeah, I love <laughs> Walter Goggins is really good in this movie. Absolutely. Um, and yeah. I would say the, the one thing, you know, if there's any criticism of Django, it's that uh, Jamie Foxx... The Fox, Australians? Oh, well, <laughs> no, yeah, well that. Yeah, right? His his horrible Sorry. Australian accent. No, you're you're not wrong, though. Um, well, that's the worst part of the movie. But, anyway, really, any critici- it, real criticism, though. Right. It, no, it really is. You're, you're absolutely correct. Um, but the idea of, like, uh, you know, Jamie Foxx's Django being a bit of a cipher, um, you know, hmm. he's not necessarily easy to access. And yet, for me, that's not necessary. I think uh, there are so many Westerns that kind of create the foundation of the cinematic world. You know, you look at John Ford or a- a- anybody after. Um, a lot of their main characters, uh, all you know about them is they're the new guy in town. They're the sheriff. And that's all you need to know. And so I really do love that uh, Django has Broomhilda as this anchor to humanity, right? She is not just this damsel in distress. She is also um, a piece of himself that he's trying to reclaim, right? She is his one and true thing that he loves in the world, and that is enough to spur him into every single um, branch of this mission that he ends up going on. And I I, I think that's enough, Um but yeah, that's that. That for me is maybe the one drawback is that the main character is maybe the is surrounded by a lot more interesting characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's a good point. But but again, for for me, I think the engine that drives Django is is enough to keep me more than interested. Um, yeah. So those are my top two right there. Before we leave this, I just want to add. I think this movie for all of the action and dramatic elements we've mentioned i also think it does have a pretty good sense of humor on it i want to i want to add the the hoods bit when the guys oh are gosh, complaining about you. the 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 eyes the eye holes and he's like you know what that's the last time i ever do something nice for you guys you ever need something don't come to me in my mind and he storms off or just yeah. they decide to do the raid anyway but in the hoods and they can't see and oh my god that's you're absolutely so right funny absolutely right i mean you talk don about johnson like, don johnson's right. plantation and you wear those yep. clothes on purpose like there's some, <laughs> there's some and then even some of just i know it's dark but some of the stuff samuel L. jackson's doing is hilarious so anyway oh, yeah and the violence i mean truly you talk about the way that he sh- that uh Django shoots up the plantation owners you know and he shoots up all of the folks who are working there they're almost like sacks of blood it's so comical how over the top it is it is a very funny movie you talk about the the, the kkk scene that is straight out of a coen brothers film i mean it yeah. is that it is that biting and talk about like casting jonah hill again never in either of these two films i've mentioned does anything ever feel like stunt casting it always feels like he did an incredible job putting together a group of collaborators in a way that fit the world of the movie he was putting together um and so for that i i yeah i really admire it um cool so i wanted so to your swing picks, over huh? yeah my picks i wanted yeah. to add your i wanted to get your first two and, I, and i'm glad we started off with yours so you're you're come along and and definitely feel free to elaborate on mine as much as possible because i know my listeners are tired of hearing my voice but my first movie was pulp fiction or is pulp mm. fiction 
And I really think this should be re required viewing for anyone that wants to get into movies. Uh, for anyone that wants to talk about Quentin Tarantino, it's it's absolute required viewing. You talked about how this was kind of this. He was the dude. It, this puts him on the stage as this this director that you need to pay attention to, and, and in a very big way, and and just absolutely takes award season by storm they end up mm -hmm. losing to forrest gump but you know we're very real players and and he was always somebody that he would punch up scripts or he he obviously had true romance before this so people kind of knew of him definitely but yeah this definitely puts him on the map i i just it's so interesting in a rewatch and you almost have i I, I still, so, you know, I've heard arguments that this doesn't follow the three-act structure, but I actually think it's, it, it does in a way, it's basically three stories that are interconnected. <laughs> and yes, he plays with the timeline and, and the linear storytelling, but it's, you've, you've got the three stories, and if you want to add Pumpkin and Honey Bunny, it's, it's four stories, but you've definitely got, you've got the... Uh, Vincent Vega and Mia Wallace story. You've got Butch and you've got um, you've, you've got Butch and Marcellus Wallace, and then you've got the the journey of Samuel L. Jackson, and he kind of inter his journey of just the the righteousness and and this was a an act of God and like that's kind of Samuel L. Jackson's got his own storyline going there as well. But I think it's just really well done in terms of the structure and then the, the the dialogue is really a thing of beauty and it's it's stylized in a way and i just want to kind of pick your brain as someone that writes dialogue because it, he really just kind of punches up the he just punches up the cool parts about speech right and he kind of strips right. away like the lame stuff and just the way that they talk to each other and and the way that especially Mia Wallace when she draws that square and, and, and it explodes on the screen or um, just the the whole conversation at Jack Rabbit Slims, it's it's just cool. It's like it's not mm -hmm. it's stylized. It's not really the way people talk, but it's just it kind of is. And I just wanted mm -hmm. to get your your thoughts on that. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, I think, I mean, you brought up Sorkin earlier, right? Mm -hmm. Neither one of these gentlemen writes how we totally talk, um, and yet they write how we hope we could talk, how we yeah. wish we could talk. That is a perfect way of saying it. Yeah, yeah you know, and, and, and the his characters are infinitely cool. They are so cool. I also just love, not only is this movie incredibly quotable, um, but you're right, he makes everyday dialogue feel like poetry uh while whether they're talking about burgers or whether they're threatening someone who owes them money um he really does do this incredible kind of lyrical dance with a lot of dialogue that otherwise might just read as uh he recorded a couple of buddies from the back seat as they were driving around town and i think that's exactly by uh by his intention, right? I, I think also I admire this film's ability to give center screen to characters who otherwise would be side characters in a different movie. Like this idea hmm. of, we've seen the scene where the two mob hitmen show up, take guns out of the trunk, go and they, you know, bump somebody off. But then it cuts to what? 
Sylvester Stallone walking through the jungle. He's our hero. We've met the bad guys. Now we're going to meet the guy who's going to take them down. And instead, he, he allows us to sit with these guys and let them own their own movie. Um, I, I, for me, I find that in, incredibly exciting. I think there's also something really interesting that he does. You're absolutely right. There are these three intertwining stories. But in addition, the idea that he begins with Pumpkin and Honey Bunny, uh, he then cuts to the title card, and you kind of forget about him. Mm-hmm. You really do. You don't realize that we're going to be coming back there. You assume he's just introducing us to the style and the tone of the world through them. Um, but the idea that he allows us to circle back, um, it's just a, it is infinitely, infinitely cool. I will admit, for me, again, like I said before, I came to it late, so I'd already seen all the copycats, and I wasn't able to consequently admire this film as much as so many people do, both as an artistic achievement and just as this, this, uh, what, set in amber symbol of coolness that it is, um, but like I said before, you know, I did come to this film late, so I was encountering all of the copycats before I came to the film that inspired them all. You know, we're talking about Boondock Saints and everything under the sun that came after that. Uh, so I wasn't able to admire it either artistically or as this just really cool capsule of coolness that he mm-hmm. created. Um, but I love that it is unashamedly what it is. I love that he applies kind of a novelistic structure um, to a, a, a film in such a way where these time jumps, they don't really happen in cinema all that much, and yet, as he's put it before, if this were to happen in a book, you wouldn't think twice about it, right? If this were to happen between chapters, that wouldn't even be a problem. And it's I love so that he clever kind of, to try that, right? Really, and, it, and I love that he kind of, he says, fuck it to the rules, and he allows the film to be what it needs to be to tell this story. But it's also simple in a way, to his point with the novel, each each story has a protagonist, each story has a problem that they're dealing with, and and you do it with style, and, and it's fun, and, and you're also able to follow along, and it's also, it's not easy, but you can go, oh, yeah, okay, that scene must have, oh, no, he's in, Butch is in that scene, so obviously that, like, you're trying to figure out the timeline yourself, and, and that becomes fun, and and none of the characters are really likable people but they're written in really human ways that make them that make them likable and it's not really what they speak about but what what they say you know mm-hmm. it's not how they speak but it's just what they're saying so like the royale with cheese is one of my favorite conversations i've seen in a movie but even in and i know that uh, butch and his his girlfriend always get shit for being the worst part of the movie but i like the conversation <laughs> about the pot belly i think now when i watch it more as an adult i'm like oh that's that's kind of an interesting scene actually and mm. and or or i mean don't walk in with the with the with the watch up his ass i mean that's you know but it's just like there's just so many different cool ways to to write a scene and, and to 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 have the dialogue and man it's like god i just it would be so so much fun as an actor, and I think all the actors look like they're having such a blast doing this movie. I I whereas I admired Inglorious Bastards and Django for having these large ensembles and everybody feeling like they had an arc. I really appreciate that Pulp Fiction focuses really on about five or six people, and anyone else you meet is almost a detour on their journey. And Good there's point. this feeling of anytime Vincent and Jules. Uh, meet up with someone, 
you can tell there's this feeling of this person was enjoying their day and then these two guys brought their problems to their doorstep. And I kind of love that they act accordingly, <laughs> right? Whether it's the overdose um, oh, with, yeah. Uh, yeah, right? And, oh, uh, I, I love that with uh, Miss Wallace. I think there's also... But that's also the consequence, the right? He's talking about all the consequence. He's wearing his jacket. It's inappropriate. And so that's the fucking consequence right. he gets for that, getting that close and, and even just kind of dancing with no pun intended dancing with the idea of being romantic with miss wallace and it's like comes back to bite him in the ass it's so cool the way that plays out absolutely yeah and i i also find that uh ving rames the 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 turnaround that his character gets to have I, that does feel earned i i will admit for me butch's subplot butch's side story what it, what will what whatever you'd like to call it is probably my least of the three yeah of Mm -hmm. the three and yet for me the way that he's able to patch things up with marcellus uh the 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 side characters that he encounters whether it's uh zed or whether it's um christopher walken's character with the watch um the things that butch's storyline introduces to us um that makes it compelling worth it yeah it makes it worth it yeah absolutely and it's just so coincidental and that's what's so fun about the movie too and just goes to speak on how we're, we're out of control, but these random things are, are filled with coincidence. Even just Pumpkin and, and Honey Bunny talking about, oh, this looks like a place that we're going to cut down on the hero factor, and it's the very right. restaurant where two dudes are <laughs> completely armed and definitely can play hero if they need to. Or just yep. the pulling up to that stoplight, and Marcellus is crossing the street with donuts and coffee. And it's just like, like all or just the fact that all these these stories get intertwined and connected in different ways it's it doesn't really have a it's hard to say like what this movie's about specifically Mm -hmm. besides just the fact that there's hardly any way to control anything vincent vega thinks there's no control um jules thinks that you know god god is intervening they they disagree and then butch doesn't really have an opinion either way (laughs) but that's kind of what i have in, in terms of like what the movie's about and you bring up a good point. There's this screenwriting thing, right, that I, I heard recently, which is uh, when we hate uh, a film or a, a twist that happens in a TV show, it tends to be because something conveniently happens that gets the hero out of trouble. And we find that to be cheap, and we find that to be unrealistic. What I love about this film, though, and what this quote continues to say is, but what we love is when something conveniently happens that is to the detriment yes. of a character. And by and by that I mean Marcellus walking across with donuts, what are the chances he'd be crossing that intersection at that moment? And yet we like it because it's the worst possible thing that could happen for Butch at that moment. The idea of that's the diner that they end up having breakfast at after disposing of the body, that's the worst possible place they could have imagined having breakfast. But these conveniences are all stacked against them rather than in their favor. And I think that it's because of that that he gets away with it. I think there's also just something to be said about calling the movie Pulp Fiction. where It's kind of him saying, hey, like any piece of Pulp Fiction, uh, throw the rules out the window because anything can happen in this world. And as a, as a result, anything happens. Everything does, And yeah. we go along with the ride. I, I am curious your thoughts on if we even want to get into this but i'm curious your thoughts about the the co the quote-unquote co-writer roger avery and whether or not 
he gets enough credit for this film. For me, I, I don't really know what he contributed, probably beyond a few ideas. Yeah. Um, but it's it's the one, you know, for someone who admires his own resume, like Tarantino does, the fact that he had to share his first Oscar, I can imagine, is just a little bit of a sore spot for him. Um, yeah. And so, Especially because he's, he's proven time and time again that he... Just even he can do it on his, his own. Yeah, that, like, yeah, yeah. To, to share is is a little interesting but yeah you know if they i don't know who do you think that was the production company that paired them together or do you think that uh no i know that they were friends they were before, right okay. and so and there was probably something to be said about roger saying hey i i told you about that story and quentin said i mean you told me about a boxer and mm-hmm. i then wrote butch you know whatever yeah. that might be whatever that controversy was i do think that's maybe one of the few controversies that's attached to this film um and most people have forgotten about it but that's the, that's the thing that always comes to mind i i do wish that tarantino ha- was able to win his own oscar on his own i will say though winning both an oscar and the palm door on your second film ever is pretty incredible yeah so yeah. What, who's he to complain you know i do love reservoir dogs my second mm. movie was something that i've talked a lot about on this podcast so i'm gonna get your take on it but once upon a time in hollywood so sure. i wanted to i it, you could go back to when the movie was released we did an hour and a half on it also leading up to the oscar season i i talked about this movie a lot but what were your feelings about once upon a time in hollywood you know what my feelings have actually changed um Ooh. each time i go back to it um they get better I should, okay. I should put that I should put that out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they now get I hate it. No. <laughs> no, 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 for sure. I think um for me it is it's the first time in a while that I think a high profile director has written a has has put together what's turns out to be a a pretty darn fun hangout movie. Yeah, it's where definitely you really the body do hang. Yeah. Feel yeah, you feel like you're in the passenger seat, particularly with uh, Brad Pitt's Cliff Booth. You really do feel like you're driving around town with him just listening to music. And I know there are so many people, there, there's a common sentiment that says, like, the, some folks wish that there had been an hour more of just Cliff, Cliff driving around town playing, you know, blasting music. Um, I love that about it. Um, I find the Rick Dalton, I find his on, on-set um, antics to be really funny. I, I think it's maybe outside of Wolf of Wall Street the funniest DiCaprio's ever been. Yeah, this um, movie is the funniest Tarantino movie. I, I, I would agree with that, too, 100%. Um, yeah, I, I think for me, uh, it there is something to be said about... I'm, I don't know how much I needed Sharon Tate to be a, a character, quite frankly, because I, I wish she'd either gotten a little bit more or been a little bit just been a little bit more almost a silhouette in in the neighbor's house like if she was just in a character at all yeah yeah she she was for me when i first heard about the film she was already presented as a symbol so trying to make her less of a symbol and more of a human you actually ended up just giving her one or two scenes that i think um what would i say compounded the issue that i think some critics had with it um secondly i would say um structurally it felt like he was doing this really fun thing about just a few days in the life of and i don't know that i entirely uh love the time jump right he's he's we're with them for 36 straight hours and then he jumps to the day of 
the Manson murders. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I keep going back and forth on that. But all, all in all, I had a really good time, uh, particularly at the movie theaters, particularly with that finale. Um, and I would say, yeah, for me, it, it, there were a few cutaways that maybe were less successful than others, which is why it wasn't in my top two. But I actually, I found it to be a really mature ode and love letter to a town that he loves and admires and an industry that he cares for. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Speaking of punishing the people in history that you hate. <laughs> right? Right? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, those But what, those it's so satisfying. Punished. Yeah. So satisfying. And I think it's that scene that won Brad Pitt his Oscar. I mean, truly, it's... It's it, fun, yeah. C- Cliff, Cliff in that film is so fun and so iconic. The fact that he became a Halloween costume after that, I think speaks to the power of that character's mythos. Yeah, you know that we actually, me and Hayes, were Cliff and Rick <laughs> in Hollywood. I didn't know that. On Halloween. Wow. I happened to be in Los Angeles on Halloween, so we did. I was I was Cliff, wow. or excuse me, I was Rick with the kimono and the, the flamethrower, and then he, my, uh-huh. Hayes was uh, Cliff with the, with the Adidas and the Hawaiian shirt, so. It was a it was a lot of fun, and we actually went around, drove around. We went to where the Spawn Ranch was shot and stuff like that. So we had a nice little wow. day. But uh, yeah, I mean, if anyone wants deeper, and I think you you articulated a, a lot of really good points for today's conversation. Um, if anyone's interested, there's a, a Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I, I go on for about an hour and a half. So, but just fun. <laughs> uh, again, we're talking about genre. You know, just um, the the talking about hollywood saving the day you got a, a, a western actor defeating the the mansons which is fun and or just a stunt double you've got um some revisionist history there another great soundtrack but i i think just i think the the, the buddy element of it was was what drew me to it and and i love and, and it almost feels like a, a coen brothers movie where it's just it's funny it gets funnier the more you watch it the nuance the, yep. the the more you hang out with the characters the the better it is and i i absolutely loved the movie and 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 i uh, wanted to add it into today's conversation so yeah. those are our that, our favorite go ahead you were saying oh i was just gonna say i think the saddest thing about it is that it's his ninth film and i think particularly when you look at something like the spawn ranch sequence and how well he handles that horror element it really is palpable it it makes you wonder you know with his 10th and final film uh what's he gonna do because regardless of what he decides uh there's going to be some genre you'll wish he touched and it, and honestly for me watching that spawn ranch sequence i wish we had a chance to see tarantino handle horror and i don't know that we will hmm. um and so that was maybe for me there was also a sadness because i do feel like um I do wonder how much Rick Dalton's mourning the loss of I'm a has-been coincides with Tarantino's love of the actual idea of shooting on film and knowing that his day is coming. Um, And it it makes you sad knowing that his quote-unquote professional days are numbered by choice, but nevertheless that he's... He's gonna hang up the cowboy hat at some point. Um, so that was also a feeling yeah. that I, I keep coming away from that film with. Is it does feel like he is also aging out of the industry, or he feels he is, or he's mourning the loss of something. 
Um, if and so that's that, the that case, that's think. really interesting because then you have two movie, you have two directors basically telling a similar kind of story because you have Scorsese and the Irishman, the old mm. the, the the passing of the the mobsters and you know these these iconic mobsters and these old men that are they're aging out or dying out and, and feeling less and less relevant as time goes by and then you've also got tarantino and that swan song so if that is the case that's that's really interesting that both of those were happening in the same calendar year well and and i think the fact that both of them were at one point front runners for best picture and both lost i think that speaks to a changing industry around them um and whether or not you know whatever Tarantino's swan swan song is. Is he going to tie up this the mythos of his Tarantino cinematic universe? Is he going to do something entirely unexpected and unrelated? It, I'm really excited and curious, but it, it does make you wonder um, how he's going to see himself out. Yeah, great. Well, we talked about some of our favorites. Every rose has a thorn. Every career has a thorn, so to say. So. What is your least favorite Tarantino movie? Oh, man, that's got to be Death Proof, right? Yeah, we're both on Jeez. with Death Proof. Yeah. Ugh. Just... What a... Like, just what a snooze, right? Just... I've never been... I never thought that Speaking I... of characters you don't really care to hang out with. <laughs> no, truly. Well, and, and beyond that, too, it's like, I actually really loved the experiment that was Grindhouse. I saw that in yeah. the theaters with all the fake trailers. I did, too, and you are in there for I six actually hours. actually really... Yeah. Yeah, I and 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 maybe this will make some of your listeners vomit in their mouths, but I actually really dug Robert Rodriguez's installment in that. I, I actually, what is it, Planet, Planet Terror? Terror? Or I something? didn't mind Planet yeah. Terror. Yeah, I thought it was funny because it knew exactly what it was and it had its, you know, tongue firmly in its cheek, and I, I found the cutaways to be really funny. Whereas I felt like Death Proof was Kurt Russell's great. I mean, really great casting, um, but I just found it to be boring mm-hmm. and I, I found myself wanting to i don't know like i the even like i don't even remember the the music it's the first tarantino film that i don't recall a single song in it and it's not because i it's it's not because there weren't good songs on the soundtrack i just found myself checking out consistently um and then and the so, whole yeah, thing and, was supposed to be this this scene where she's tied up to the front of the car and, and that's supposed to be this big car chase thrilling scene and it just doesn't have the impact i think he was planning on no and i w- i will say you know there's some really great there's some i do think some of the photography in the movie is really well done particularly in the car chases or in that first you know when he first he flips the lights runs on into a runs Mm-hmm. Right, he flips the lights on for that first group of women. Um, that's horrifying, uh, and I think he handles that really well. Yeah, that was kind um, of interesting. The the tire basically like mangles that girl's oh face, and then gosh. the leg the, the leg goes. Right. She got her leg out the window. You're going, oh, that's that leg's coming off. Yeah, and it and it did, and it was. Mm-hmm. I thought that was actually really well produced. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, you're right. It felt like um, for a film that had life or death stakes, it really. I didn't care, you know, yeah. <laughs> like I, so I'm curious. Yeah. What are, what are some of the things that you kind of came away from that film? Yeah. I think we touched on most of them. I just, you don't, you don't buy into the characters enough to, to care the, the scenes that are supposed to be thrilling end up not being. And, and I don't think it was because we had already watched planet terror. You can watch it on its own and it, and it doesn't really hold up. It was a, it was a great experiment. You, you wish that, 
the execution of the movies and i know it was a big flop it was probably his least successful movie commercially and i think eventually they ended up splitting them up which he was was definitely against but they ended up splitting up the two movies to to try to to encourage people to come in because people were too intimidated by the runtime of the whole project but mm. it yeah, it's just it was it was a chance you commend the ambition behind it but just not it, it didn't work didn't work. I think it's a sign of at that point he had earned the right to experiment yeah right he had had reservoir dogs pulp fiction Jackie Brown well I think it was the two kill Bill movies and so I think at that point um, the they who shall not be named those those two brothers who ran this that studio named after them you know I think they kind of had this feeling of give the, give the boy what he wants right and I, I think there's something to be said about like Grindhouse is exactly what they wanted it to be. I just found Death Proof to be, uh, yeah, the least interesting part about it. Um, yeah. And I think, quite frankly, I just found in in an otherwise everything else about Grindhouse had a really wicked sense of humor. Um, I didn't I didn't find Death Proof to be funny. I just I it it kind of laid there like a dead fish for me. And again, this is, we're talking about a we're talking about an action film about like an evil stunt driver. Like that's incredible. That's such a good idea. And the fact that we're calling it boring, I think that says a lot about the way it was put together. So, preach, preach. So typically, when we wrap up these conversations, we do some shout outs. I wanted to give a shout out to Kill Bill. It it's just really really fun two sets of movies that are kind of in the middle of a lot of people's lists but i i think again the had a phenomenal cinematography in this movie i i loved the two different uh, genres that they used first samurai with the first one and then western with the second one and, and especially the first one you talked i talked about that mortal Kombat style gore i mean he really leans into it with with this movie and i i just like some of the, the things later i loved the soundtrack in this movie i loved the oren ishii uh anime piece it cuts to this this mm-hmm. really cool anime oh backstory I, I loved that water bucket in the garden when they're doing that final fight with Lucy yep. Liu and that water bucket just keeps tipping and it, it has this whole legend in it. I In the second movie, I loved the, the Carradine monologue about Superman. I always think yep. about that monologue and, and I, I thought it was a really cool way to articulate his point of view and why why he did what he did. And so I, I always liked the movie, but I just like some of these other ones better. Do you have anything to say about Kill Bill or any other shout outs? I mean, no. I mean, for me, I think you, you covered Kill Bill pretty well. Absolutely. That anime sequence is by far my favorite. Um, again, I think he utilizes some songs in this, in these two films in ways that it's hard not to associate those songs with that film now he really repurposes them in ways that you associate them with his uh, motion picture as opposed to whatever motion picture he originally pulled it from the soundtrack of. Yeah. Um, I would say, uh, for me, um, he's one of the few, he's one of the few directors I, I was aware of who broke away temporarily to work on a television special. You know, he directed the 
the finale, uh, the season finale of one of the seasons of the very first CSI. Hmm. I don't know if you ever watched that. No. Um, but it was a, it was a, an episode in which one of the detectives was kidnapped and buried in a box out in the desert. Um, and he he brought a really cool. It was the first time I'd watched uh, a, a motion picture director bring their style um, to a show in a way that still matched the show's structure. And I thought he was he handled that really responsibly. Um, I would say the way in Kill Bill Volume Two that Bill of all people is dispatched so quickly mm. is actually really admirable and just another way to really catch the audience off guard. We assume it's going to be the largest battle of all them um and yet uh he he catches a a soft guard there and then i would say the last sequence that i really admire and it's actually i admire it but it's it's horrifying is uh while i'm i'm not the biggest hateful eight fan um i did find that the flashback scene in minnie's haberdashery um in which we meet minnie Mm -hmm. um and we find out what happened before our our lead characters arrived um I found that to be a really interesting execution of dramatic irony or dramatic tension where we knew something they didn't and we were waiting for the other shoe to drop. And when it did, it was horrifying. Um, and I, I found that to be uh, really well done. Um, and I'm just sad. I love the, I, I love, I also really like the monologue that the big black coffee monologue from Samuel <laughs> L. Jackson. I just, yep. it, that's a yep. fun watch. Just him working I, with, uh, Bruce Dern there, but you were saying, yeah. Oh, I was just gonna say, and then overall for for the man, I I really admire someone who's able to, who treats their resume and their filmography with such respect. Um, regardless of how many hits and misses you feel he has, the idea that he's willing to call it at ten or whatever number he were to have arbitrarily thrown out, the idea that he's willing to say, I'm stepping away while the getting's good. I really admire that, and I think there's something really cool about that. And I think whatever he ends up directing, finally, I think he's going to end up creating some really cool things for television, which I'm excited about. And I think he's going to become... maybe theater. I, I, I truly, I think he'll become... A, I think he'll certainly uh, be a playwright before he's done. And I, I hope he becomes one of our, our great... Um, film journalists you know i hope he releases a book or two about things that have nothing to do with his own filmography because his love pours out of every frame that he shoots um and i think they would make for really exciting reads yeah preach preach um <laughs> i you just you said it so well i, I love having you on as a guest and I think we'll we'll end there. I was gonna have this whole piece about Kill Bill and the girl power behind it, but I think I think you. I want to end with with what you just said. I think. Oh okay. We I think we had a very. I think we did him service here. I think I think we had a very good conversation today, and Mister. <laughs> I think Tim. he'd be proud. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully he's listening. But thank you for coming back on, Spencer. I'm looking forward to having you on. Now that you have a, you have a microphone now, so I feel like we're gonna have a lot more of these conversations. So exciting. Thanks for having me on again, Bob. My pleasure, man. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Don't forget to like and subscribe, and we'll see you guys next time. Wear a mask, wash your hands, stay safe. Bye!